Hello and welcome to the Goal 4 podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. Imagine you're a new teacher, freshly qualified, ready to go. You have your books, your whiteboard markers, your obligatory cup of coffee, and a class of 300 children. Wait, what? 300? Where do you start? Do you just teach the 45 that are sitting in the front row? Do you wander around your outdoor classroom, waving your arms and shouting so everyone can hear? What happens if someone doesn't understand something? And what happens if some of the children are blind or deaf? With 300 children in your care, how can you include them all? How can you include all children in education? There is a moral need to do so, not to mention the vast socio-economic benefits. But in practice, how can this be achieved? In some developing countries, class sizes really do run into the hundreds. But in wealthier nations, with 10 times fewer children per teacher, inclusion is still an incredibly difficult thing to achieve in education. In fact, no countries yet achieve full inclusion. All over the world, students are still segregated into special schools and mainstream schools. But is this the right thing to be doing? Is it the students that have to adapt to a particular way of schooling? Or should schools be changing to suit the needs of all children? What is inclusive education? How should we understand it? What are the barriers to achieving it? And how can we overcome these barriers? Here to talk to me about this is Bob Prouty. Bob is something of a legend in the world of education and inclusion. He's the former head of the Global Partnership for Education, or GPE, and has over 40 years of experience of working in the education sector. He's worked closely with governments, donor agencies, and NGOs, such as the World Bank, UNICEF, European Union, and UNESCO. Throughout a long and successful career, he's given particular attention to inclusive classroom contexts and learning outcomes. What it takes to ensure that all children have access to good quality learning opportunities. He has recent country experience in Sudan, Ethiopia, Mauritania, Central African Republic, Chad, and Rwanda. Bob has presented several keynote addresses on educational equity and inclusion, including at the Global Conference on Inclusive Education in Salamanca, Spain, in 2009. More recent experiences include drafting three chapters of the 2019 UNICEF Global Report, A World Ready to Learn, Prioritizing Quality Early Childhood Education, as well as three chapters of the World Bank's flagship report on education in the Middle East and North Africa. He's also been the principal author of UNICEF's annual education results report from 2016 to 2022. For the past four years, Bob has helped to organise the European Union's annual education seminar for EU delegation staff working in developing countries on education issues and has written a number of education policy briefs for the EU. Bob holds a PhD in educational administration from Michigan State University with a focus on African studies. Bob Prouty. Hello and welcome to the Goal 4 podcast. Thank you, Richard. It's an honor for me to be on here with you. This show is going to be all about inclusion in education, particularly with the most marginalized in society in mind. So just to start things off, I wanted to ask, what does inclusive education mean to you? Everybody has the chance to learn. Keep it fairly simple, uh, a lot more <laughs> complex than that in reality, but uh, th- that's the basic point is that uh, everybody has, a, has, has the same opportunity. 
So simple as that. Um, as you say, it might not be as simple as that in reality. Why is that? Well, it's not for for a lot of reasons. Uh, and one is that the opportunity uh, looks very different for different people. Uh, just having a having a classroom in your village for instance, might be sufficient opportunity for a lot of kids, but uh, that that is not by any stretch of the imagination equal opportunity for all kids. Uh, so trying to figure out what it actually means uh, to, to, to provide equal opportunities is an entire, entirely different question. And, and of course, if we're, if we're seeing very different outcomes, then that tells us something as well. Yeah, of course, of course. So we're talking about education for all kids. Um, and you hinted there that that might come more easily to some than others. This is a very uh, general question. And of course, it's going to be different in every single area, in every country. But in a general sense, who are the most marginalised when it comes to education? Well, you tend to you, you, you tend to recognise the most marginalised kids easily. They're the ones that we blame for not getting a good education. We blame them for not for not doing better than they're actually doing uh in 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 so many cases you know um in education we we have this kind of a split between uh between supply and demand and and, and the idea is in many cases uh you know there's something there's something wrong with some segment of the population that they don't they don't understand the value of education uh they don't have the demand for education that they should have uh and and, and therefore this is often anyway this is often taken from a kind of a uh, a perspective like like a deficit perspective there's there's something wrong with with the parents they don't understand the value of education or with the kids themselves um and we have to deal with it and i think as long as as long as we have that perspective uh you know we're we're, we're not getting very far um there's very rarely the question asked uh, on on the uh, on the other side of the equation you know what's wrong with us what what are we doing here that 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 is is not providing equal opportunities for kids but but you know we, I think we we've, we've traditionally um, uh, looked at, at uh, disadvantage. I would say probably from a fairly fairly narrow lens. We talk about inclusive education, but there's actually surprisingly little funding. You know, very very little funding for what you would actually consider a, a true uh, inclusive education program. Um, much of the funding for uh, on uh, on uh, children who are who are marginalized or dis- disadvantaged has, has gone on the uh, gender programs, for instance, uh, which is certainly a part of the issue. Um, uh, some, uh, I would say some on, uh, on poverty. Poverty is a huge part of this, but it's not, not generally joined up way. So uh, disability, which is kind of uh, at, at the heart of what we often think about when we're talking inclusive education, oftentimes it's just understood as it's kind of a euphemism when we say inclusive education, that we're talking about education for children with, with disabilities. Unfortunate that we we kind of I think it ends up with us being in a situation where we we've approached ironically inclusive education in in a very segmented fashion where where all of these things are handled in a, in a completely uh, compartmentalized fashion. Okay, yeah. So you you talk about disability um, being one of the key factors. It is often one of the factors most cited in inclusive education, and I suppose in a lot of inclusive education work focuses just on disability, but it's also, you said, about gender, about poverty. Can you talk a bit about how these areas can intersect? Well, I, I think that the the, the, the opportunities of, of, of 
really taking an inclusive approach, you know, a truly inclusive approach uh, to education, uh, go far beyond the disability community. Uh, my, my own sense is that when you when you organize an education system in ways that that children with disabilities are included and, and given opportunities to, to, to learn, full opportunities to learn, you, you end up changing the education system in, in, in so many ways that address uh, the needs of so many children. You, you can't address uh, the needs of children with disabilities without thinking about the individual needs of children. And, and being able to, to, to address children as individuals is something that so many education systems are, are so poor at doing so so we would we would benefit so much from this shift uh to to a, a new understanding that that education can be tailored in ways that meet individual children's needs uh, but my concern is that we have you know we have a lot of areas that we work on that that uh, i think should be considered as a part of inclusive education that we handle almost entirely uh, separately i i mentioned gender earlier uh I'm working right now on on a, on a report on children out of school in Ethiopia, and uh, some out of school children has been a, a, an issue that I've been I've been working on for a, lo- a long, long time, going back uh, to and before my days uh, uh, working at the Global Partnership for Education. Um, and another related uh, area is early childhood education. If you can get children in school early, there's much better chance uh, of them. Uh, staying in school and, and 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 being successful, and I mentioned poverty as well. So I, I think all of these areas: early childhood, out of school, poverty, disability, gender. Uh, th- there are several others I could mention. Um, the these all uh, intersect in, in in so many ways, and yet for for reasons that are unclear to me, uh, we, we continue to I, I I think treat them as as very separate issues, and and, and I don't think that's good for anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I couldn't agree more. I have been looking, I mean, only recently reading a report myself on on out-of-school children. And it seems, from the work I've been doing, it seems that in a lot of areas, the main emphasis of inclusive education is to get as many children into school as possible. And then people can say, well, job done, we've included everyone. But that's not the whole picture, is it? Well, of course, uh, opportunity to get into into a classroom is is one thing. Uh, opportunity to learn is, is quite something else. And unfortunately, there are a lot of classrooms where children are, are not given opportunities to learn. Uh, my my uh, sometimes uh, maybe too strong statement on this, but I, I really believe it. My my statement is that a, a classroom where children are not learning is a sweatshop. You know, what's the difference in in, in pulling? Uh, Children together into overcrowded spaces under suboptimal conditions uh, for working, uh, where they may actually be getting some, you know, some some income, um, or pulling them together into a classroom where they're sitting there and not learning anything and calling it a school. Uh, I'm not for a moment suggesting that uh, there's anything acceptable about about uh, you know uh, child labor or, or, or sweatshops. But we don't realize, I think, uh, that far too often we're putting children in in schools uh, that really resemble um, what, what what we would consider sweatshops in, in other circumstances. Oppor- opportunities to learn are not available to children in many cases. Putting two hundred children 
I've seen classrooms with the most I've personally seen is 280, but I know that in some places you can get over 300 in, in, in Central African Republic, where I was a year or so ago, they had classrooms over 300. I counted 280, but it was hard to count that many kids in the classroom. And that's not, you know, that's not schooling. It's, it's, it's odd because I mean, there are some benefits, you know, just from, from showing up at school, you know, kids get used to working a little bit more with authorities and institutional settings. And there are some benefits, even from bad schooling. But that's not something that we should be aspiring to, and it's certainly not uh, inclusive education. So I, I think, uh, along with my list of of elements that we tend to treat uh, separately, uh, you know, I, I would probably add uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, question of of learning and and uh, how do we maximize opportunities for children to learn in these different contexts. That's incredible. Three hundred students in a classroom. Um, but just just before we move on, what? What then could teachers do? I mean, given that example, you have 300 kids sitting in front of you. Is it, are the teachers themselves constrained by the, by the wider educational system, by the way it's designed, by the way that schools are designed? Or is this more a question of teacher training? I, I mean, I think a lot of it is, it comes down to, to political will, both on the part of, of, of country leadership, national leadership and, and international uh, development community. Uh, we should not have classrooms where there are 300 kids or even 200 or 100 kids in a classroom. It shouldn't be happening. And yet, you know, I can cite case after case. Malawi in the, in the, in, in the mid nineties, uh, had up to 400 kids in open air classrooms, uh, uh, for an astonishingly long period of time. And, and not a lot was done about it. The Central African Republic currently in, in rural parts of Central African Republic, um, the average class size is, is about 200. Um, basically, it, what it means is that the schools are, are not seen as, as serving the, the function that we think of them as seen, but they're, they're more or less places to keep kids together and, and maybe keep them keep them uh, somewhat um, safe in, 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 in unsafe circumstances. But they're, they're, when, when you have you know, well over 100 kids in a classroom, you're certainly not seeing them as... Uh, as, as places to learn. So I, I don't think it's the teacher's fault. I think, I think a lot of this, you know, we blame the kids that they're not learning. We blame the teachers that they're not teaching, mm. but uh, you know, with a couple of hundred kids or even a hundred kids in a classroom, it, it, it's pretty hard. Some exceptional teachers will somehow figure it out and, and, and make a go of it. Uh, but no, you have to be able to organize systems in, in ways that, that provide much better opportunities. And, and the reality is that whether it's national governments or whether it's uh, the donor partners, or, or others, uh, civil society and others, we, we, we have not yet, um, you know, managed to, to, to prioritize children who are in the most challenging circumstances. And so we commonly, commonly see uh, uh, rural uh, uh, schools that, that don't have uh, uh, teachers, certainly don't have qualified teachers, so they end up having these large numbers of kids don't have enough schools, and so you have to crowd into the schools that you do have. And we often see uh, similarly, I think uh, you'll see in the early grades, you'll see these huge, huge class sizes. And that may then kind of get smaller as kids drop out as they, as, as they go up uh, in age. So I, I think that the, the question of, of, of how we provide uh, support for individual um, individual children and, and for schools that are operating in 
in suboptimal circumstances is, is something that we really have not taken nearly as seriously as we should have. I mean, a lot of people have given some thought to it and, and, and you know, giving some, uh, giving some, putting some energy towards doing that. But I, I honestly think that this is not something that we've, we've taken seriously. So many of our targets, you know, we, we set these, these magical targets for ourselves. And if you want to reach those targets, then, then, you know, there's kind of a hierarchy of ways you do that. And you hit the, um, the urban kids first, because you get big numbers and you can get your, your fairly uh, big increases in the overall, overall numbers that way. So it, it tends to go, unfortunately, kind of urban boys, urban girls, and then you end up with uh, with rural boys and rural girls, and then you mm. kind of move on down the line to children who have who have uh, perhaps greater difficulties, or who may be living further away from existing schools, living in poverty, living with disability, and so on. Yeah, so it's that almost looking for a kind of that trickle down effect that never quite trickles down. It's hard for us to shift the, the, the paradigm and move in the opposite direction, where we where we we think from the school up and. Uh, like I, I used to, when I was at GPE, I tried to do this and we I continued to do this in, in my career, but try, try to say, you know, what would it take for us to get education services to all kids like immediately or within a year? What would we have to do if we looked at this as, as something urgently important as opposed to something that we, we can kind of incrementally do over the next 15 or 20 years? And and the kinds of things that 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 you would do, I, th- I think it stimulates, uh, 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 you know, some maybe out of the box thinking, but the kinds of things that you would do to reach all all children immediately would certainly have to do with with with, with you know training uh, parents, training staff, uh, training the, the most educated people you have in, in in communities. It would have to do with getting materials out there, uh, supporting parents and interacting with their children. You know, getting some some um, more of a bottom up dialogue going about what what an education is, and then gradually working to to d- deepen that. I mean, there are two ways you can approach it, and I think that this has a lot to do for inclusive education. One is you can you can try to imagine sort of an ideal package of services like a full service approach for everybody and you you figure out how many kids you can provide that full service approach to and then you gradually try to expand the number of kids who have access to that and i would argue that's what we have traditionally tried to do and and not with the kind of success we might have wanted Uh, and the other approach you could imagine is, is to say okay let's start with all children to me that's inclusion let's start with all children provide them as many services as we possibly can, and then gradually improve the quality of, of those services. I mean, there would certainly be some, you know, some uh, uh, minimums in the very start. It would need to be a child-friendly environment. It would need to be a focus on learning. You would, you would need to have uh, 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 proper, safe environment and conditions and so on. But you can do that in ways that reach all children and, and, then, and, then, and then expand it. Anyway, my concern is that we've... We've, we've often identified this package of things that we call real school, and then we think that somehow we can gradually bring more kids on board into that real school, and it, and it just never happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's, the, essentially, it's essentially you have a school and a design for a school and what you think in your head a school should look like and its purpose, and you're trying to fit all of the different students into that model, right? Right. Um, so, and what you're and what you're suggesting is is almost flipping that on its head and and considering the fact that you have a very different cohort of students. Everybody's different in their own way. Now, how can we change schools to adapt to that? I, I think so. And I, and I think there's 
you know, there are all sorts of moral hazards. I mean, there are moral hazards to whichever way you want to, you, you know, try to do it. So I, I accept that. Like, like you, you can say, well, you're, you're providing schools for poor children on the cheap or something like this. And, and it, it, I'm not talking about that. I, I don't think you can avoid, you know, having to confront those, those issues. But, but if you were to say, uh, you know, in, in country X, uh, only 50% of, of children in, in, in certain rural districts or maybe children living in deep poverty or children with disability, only a certain uh, small percentage of those children are going to school. So the first question would be, if education is a right, which, which I certainly believe it to be, then, then how do we make sure that those children can, can, can uh, get you know, their right uh, to learn recognized and, and acted on? So what can we do for all those children? And it might be that, you know, in the first two years, you can't get fully qualified teachers out to everybody. You certainly can, but, but you, you, you can get, you can get learning materials. You can get, uh, you can get support for, for, uh, for parents, for, for literate people in, 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 in distant villages where there are currently no teachers and you can get it started. And there would have to be obviously a commitment to grow the process. But what you would do is monitor are all children being addressed by the education system are they all getting materials are they all getting an opportunity to learn and of course i would argue uh, that the important thing here is you know to start off with are all these kids learning to read are they learning the kind of the basics or or or, or you know as, as much as is possible and and i i would argue that you would probably be surprised in in, in this model where you just focused on on good outcomes for children whether it's reading or whether it's good social emotional outcomes you'd probably be surprised to find that that you could achieve a lot more than you ever imagined and possibly more than you're you're currently achieving in many of your you know your so-called model schools that's really interesting um now listen bob you speak passionately about education you're an advocate for inclusion what took you down this path in the first place why education where did it start and how did you get to the position that you that you held well, I, I would hate to admit such a such a, a, a simplistic uh, a starting point for me in thinking about it. But the, the reality is that education education kind of runs in my family. My my great grandfather was a was a country teacher in Canada. I'm from Canada, uh, in a small school uh, uh, for many years. And my grandmother w- was a teacher. My my mother taught for for many years. She was a, a grade one teacher. Uh, uh, and myself, so so it's like uh, there was a certain inevitability to it. I think it almost seemed like when I when I was growing up. But I've always I've always uh, I've always enjoyed the challenge of school, and and it, it very early uh, uh, dawned on me that that uh, not everybody had the same opportunities that I that I had to learn, and I, I had an opportunity. Uh, when I was pretty young to 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 go, uh, I had a friend who was actually uh, teaching in Africa with with a uh, with a program uh, in uh, Rwanda, and he invited me to go out, and, and uh, actually ended up going somewhere else. But um, I I ended up uh, spending a lot of time. Um, I spent uh, ten years working in uh, in school programs in in Africa, and and uh, felt like I was able to uh, to make a difference. My my you know, one number I looked at a long, long time ago, you know, you look at these world development reports that uh, that uh, UNESCO puts out and uh, 
uh, one long time ago, I saw I saw this number. I can't remember exactly what it was, but there were something like six hundred and eighty thousand, six hundred and eighty million children of of school age in the world. I think that was primary school age, and, and five hundred something like five hundred and, and, and twenty million of them uh, were living in developing countries. And I thought, you know, this is like one. Like five kids out of six in, are going to elementary school, going to primary school in developing countries, and and I couldn't help but thinking, you know, you know, the next Einstein, then you know, the next great genius <laughs> who can make a difference in the world is out there somewhere, and the odds are five out of six that they're not in the <laughs> developed country, that they're in one of these countries. How do you find those kids? How do you support them? How do you make sure that the that the whole world benefits from their you know from their incredible abilities? Um, anyway, I remember being struck with that really early, and, and it's 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 kind of stayed with me. Is like, okay, how do we, how do we, you know, how do we make sure that the the world as a whole is able to benefit from the amazing people out there who maybe aren't having the chance to contribute like uh, like they otherwise would. Yeah, that's um, that's an amazing way to think about it, actually. And it's probably um, they're probably odds that are getting. Shorter and shorter, considering I, all the the demographic changes. I, I suspect somebody could listen to this <laughs> and go right back into those reports now and find yeah. out that they're 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 probably uh, stronger. And, and it's the same argument. I mean, it's made in, in a lot of countries for for providing a better education for girls. When, when I started working on Guinea in the early nineties in in West Africa, I did this little analysis one time of the university. And uh, at, at that time, I had other numbers that showed me that women were, were involved in about 80% of the, um, of the uh, subsistence farming uh, production. Um, mm. And at the university, I, there was not one single girl in the, in, in the faculty of agriculture at that time, the University of Conakry. I, I, I checked on medicine. The women were responsible for like, you know, 90% of the health care of their families. And there was one woman in the faculty of, of medicine at the university at that time so it just strikes me that you know if you're not, if you're not if you're essentially cutting your country or, or or your society off from the opportunities of of you know that that we'll have the people that we need in the right place to make the difference that we need if in the case of gender if virtually half of your population is essentially unable to contribute um, to to the development of the country in the ways that they otherwise could, then, then you, you know, you're just doing yourself a tremendous disservice. And I, I kind of look at that on, on a global scale. The same thing with, with, with children with disability. If 50% of children with disabilities are unable to go to school, which is the case in many, many contexts, just think of the potential uh, that is being lost for humanity right there. In terms of education for marginalized learners, have you seen any real success stories that you'd like to share? Well, there there certainly are success stories. I, you know, I've been doing this now for more than 40 years and, and, and um, there aren't as many uh, immediate successes as I once thought there would be you know on a small scale I, I actually had a lot of success in my in my early career working at individual institutions and and was able, able to be a part of a team that helped to, to really turn some some institutions around that 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 had a lot of success and continue to have a lot of success the school i worked with in in congo back in the in the in the mid 70s and late 70s and early 80s uh is still uh, one of the most successful, I think probably the most successful uh, uh, school in the, 
in, in the country in terms of uh, the, the quality of, of students it's producing, including a number of ministers of education, ministers of health and others. So I'm, I'm very proud of the work I've done at, kind of at an, at an individual level, but at, at a broader country level, it's more challenging. I, I look at some things and, and I think that our team working together was able to achieve a lot, but it, it doesn't necessarily always look like success uh, if you have kind of a cynical eye looking at it from the outside. Um, for instance, in Guinea, when I started when I started working on education in Guinea in the early 90s, uh, 5%, I, I remember the number as well, 5% of girls living in rural Guinea um, were in school, in primary school. So hmm. 95% of, of primary school age uh, girls were not in school in, in uh, the early 90s. And, and that number... Today, the number I would say we're, we're still in, in 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 kind of a, uh, a mediocre-looking number. I think it's around uh, it's around seventy-five or eighty percent of those girls are in school today. Uh, but it was a tremendous amount of work and a, a, a huge amount of dedication on the part of uh, so many individuals who whom I worked with and, and and respected over the years who made that happen. Um, and so you look at it today and you say, well, you know, they're kind of a more or less indistinguishable from many of the other countries around and the quality is not what it should be and so on. And yet just in terms of, of, of some, some movement, uh, they, they, they did really well. Um, you can look at, you can look at uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, some of the most disadvantaged children getting into school. You can look at a place like Ethiopia, where the, the numbers in terms of children uh, accessing early childhood ed- education um, have gone up uh, rather dramatically. So, you know, some of those things are, are, are exciting uh, stories to tell. Um, I'm beginning to see some some movement that I think will ultimately en- end up in, in some real success stories in terms of learning, where we're seeing countries like Senegal uh, uh, that uh, that were far underperforming their, their you know, kind of their expected uh Outputs where suddenly you're starting to see uh, there's a big focus on on uh, mother tongue instruction. That's a whole other story, but but they're really starting to show some some real movements in terms of of children uh, uh, being able to learn, learning to read, uh, becoming numerate much earlier. When you look at disability, what we would kind of traditionally call inclusive education, I, I think we have to look a lot harder for success stories in in developing countries. Um, there, there are a number of countries that have now moved uh, to um, develop more inclusive approaches. I can think of a place like Cambodia, where you're you're putting in place a referral mechanisms so that teachers can do initial screening in schools, and and based on those screenings, um, uh, referrals uh, uh, to to uh, needed support uh, can then occur. There are not nearly as many programs as there should be like this and they're not nearly as uh, as effective as they should be but there's there's at least a beginning so i i would be very hesitant to to point to any one country and say okay they've got it figured mm. out but i think that there i think that there is clearly an uh, an increased understanding uh that uh, all children uh, should be in school and that the country's benefit uh, the individuals benefit when when that's a focus uh, inclusive education is is on the radar in many many more places, but the the number of countries that that have um, you know effective 
strong uh, programs in place is still not anywhere near where it should be. That's interesting. So you've, uh, I wanted to ask, you've, you've been in this game a long time. Is there any sort of advice you would give to those working in this area? And I know that we could have all different kinds of people listening to this from, from ministry staff members to, to NGO workers, to teachers, but from, from your perspective, what sort of key lessons have you learned from working in this field? Well, on the negative side, um, uh, uh, someone I worked with, uh, someone who's been a disability advocate for many years, uh, Judy Human, uh, once said that the change never happens at the pace we expect or that we hope for. <laughs> and and, and she, she says that, you know, she talks about how it happens with everybody just pulling on all the levers they possibly can. And, and I think that's probably, that's probably true that, uh, a lot of things that we expected to be uh, changes that could occur maybe within a project cycle or a program cycle. Uh, if, if we're thinking in terms of like five-year plans from governments or, or four or five-year programs on the part of many of the donors, uh, those things turned out to be to, to require generational change and, uh, and maybe weren't quite so amenable to immediate short-term fixes. But, but having said that, there, there also are, I think, um, there are um, opportunities in the, in, in the short term. So I, I think, I think uh, optimism in the short term and realism kind of over the long term and just kind of keeping at it. Um, someone I used to know a long time ago, he's passed away now, but his name was Joe Farrell and he was working in Southern Africa. And, 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 and he once commented uh, to me that the, um, the, he said the governments have very few levers to pull once the teacher closes that classroom door. And I and I think that the the uh, the message uh, to me that I take from that is that investing in teachers, supporting teachers, ensuring that teachers have the support that they need is is the critical path forward. I suppose they're on the they're on the front line of inclusion, as it were. Yeah, and 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 making sure that uh, you know the people understand uh, that you know this is something that. Everybody can be a part of that. That's something for everybody. I, I remember the, one of the first years I was teaching. Uh, I had a teacher who, you know, who 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 I was working with who had who had failed like fifty percent of the kids, and it was actually a math class, and he failed fifty percent of the kids in his math class. And I said to him, I said, I said fifty percent of the kids. That seems pretty. That seems pretty harsh. And he said, I taught my lesson. If they didn't learn it, that's their problem. And I. Thought, you know, <laughs> And, and I, anyway, uh, he's no longer teaching, thankfully. Oh, that's good to hear. I think and, I can, uh, I can, uh, I can name a few teachers that I know that are yeah, quite similar they, to that. Well, I think there's still this sense out there um, that uh, you know, I think we've underestimated the the amount of the the, the kind of the mental shift that was required on the part of teachers. We had a system in many, certainly in many developing countries, where we were we were educating children to identify the, you know, the top, you know, 5% or 10% and kind of weed them out of the system and, and, and then provide them opportunities to move on. And, and in shifting to a mass education where we have a different mentality, where the idea is that every child can produce to the, to the um, maximum extent of their, of their capabilities. Every child can learn, every child can contribute. Uh, it's a, it's a whole different view of how development takes place. And it's also a very, very different view of how education takes place. And to me, inclusive education uh, can only happen when, when there's been that shift. And to some extent, it's a generational shift. There's a younger generation, perhaps a new generation, 
looks at the world in different ways, uh, which I think is a part of the process. But I also think, I think that teachers uh, are much more capable also of, of learning and of making that mental shift than sometimes we give them credit for. And I think um, working to make sure that this is a shared understanding of, of, of the purpose of education, uh, I, I just think that we need to invest more and more in that. That's really interesting to hear, particularly the part about mindset shifts, because that relates to what you were talking about at the beginning of the show, about how inclusive education is viewed, and even cutting to the core of what education is for. Yeah, and I think I think that we still, you know, we, we, we still tend to try to put things into into easily managed boxes you know like like some if you look at some of our even some of our statistics for that we could use to track the participation of some of the most marginalized children um we're still using things that just don't work like like girls education has had a lot of support as it should have over the years and yet we're still tending to to measure success by the gender index which is a very very um uh, inaccurate measure of whether uh, girls are being given uh, opportunities and you know girls in remote parts of countries you can all toss them into the overall average and lose them entirely um, you look at out of school the out of school number unfortunately remains a fiction you know it's 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 developed statistically but nobody actually knows who these children are so when you see that there's a million children out of school Nobody has a list of these kids in a, in a program to say, okay, here's where these children are. Here's how we find them. Here's how we encourage them or make opportunities for them to come to school. So I, I think in a lot of ways, we, we haven't yet made that mental shift ourselves in terms of what it takes to, to, to tackle a truly um, a support for a truly inclusive education. Bob, thank you so much for your time. And for coming on the show. Ah, thank you for having um, me, Richard. I'm looking before, forward to before, listening to the to the future podcasts. <laughs> Excellent. Before you uh, before you run away, I was um, I was hoping you would do a reading for us. You know, Richard, I was I was suspicious that you would ask me to do that, uh, rightly or wrongly. I have I have developed <laughs> a a kind of a, a reputation for. for 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 um, kind of skewed poetry, I would call it, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I feel strongly about something, so I actually prepared a little uh, a, a little poem that I, I have done. Uh, I wrote it a few years ago, actually, but I, I have that, and I'd be happy to do a reading. It's called uh, "My Right to Learn." I do not have to earn the right to learn; it's mine. And if, because of faulty laws and errors of design, and far too many places where still far too many people do not care, if because of all these things and more. For me, the classroom door with someone who can teach is still beyond my reach, still out of sight. Those wrongs do not remove my right. So here I am. I, too, am one of you. And by God's grace and yours, I'll find my place. We haven't met. You do not know me yet. And so you don't yet know that there is much that I can give you in return. The future is my name, and all I claim is this, my right to learn. Thank you, Bob Prouty, very much for coming on. Thank you, Richard. That was a wonderful Bob Prouty. Thanks for listening. Why not subscribe and tell your friends? Check back in next week for the next episode. Bye for now. <laughs>